0: You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. This message will mess you up. It is a messy message, and we're going to talk about God's life-altering grace. If you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 23 is where we're going to be. Some of you might be here for the first time. Maybe Easter was your first time, and you're like, oh, people are pretty interactive, but church is new to me. When he talks and asks a question, do I like raise my hand? Is this like school? Here's the deal. If you went to the Canes game and they scored a goal, what would you do? All right. We are only meeting together as Christians because Jesus is risen. Amen? All right. So if you get excited, feel free to interact. If I ask a question, feel free to interact. If you want to heckle me, we will have you escorted to the lobby. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But I'm going to ask you a question as we get started today. What's your favorite sport? Baseball, hockey, football, basketball. I've heard that. What else again? What was that? Kiddish. I heard Kiddish. Yeah, the man. Some broom ball. What is that? Somebody in the first service yelled marriage. <laughs> <laughs> After the service, I thought I should have asked him who's winning, and if he answered, done like a Jesus. You can been like, if you answer, it's not going well. <clears throat> and whatever sport you pick, think of your sport, whether it was hockey, basketball, football, baseball, all the different ones you said. There's always a game changer. It can be a player. Maybe it's football and your team scores a touchdown and then you kick off and the other team res- returns it for a touchdown. You're like, oh, the momentum just switched. Or you're a baseball fan and your favorite hitter just hit a ball but then somebody jumps up over the fence. It's, sometimes it's a player. Sometimes it's a moment. Maybe it's a controversial call. I see my good friend, Pastor Dave, who was preaching last week. He's got his Cubs shirt on right here. That is a curse, by the way. If you see somebody walking around with that, they were 108 years from one World Series to the next. And uh, that is a lot older than anyone here today. All right. About year 90, was it year 95 of the drought? In 2003, when they had the Bartman incident. Is that right? Any baseball fans, you familiar with that? see a couple of you nodding your heads. Some of you are like, it might as well be a Harry Potter game. I don't know what you're talking about. The Cubs, 95 years from the last World Series, that they had won, and they were in the NLCS, which is the series right before the World Series. They were winning three to zero against the Marlins. It's the eighth inning. There's only nine innings. They already had one out. There's only three outs. They're winning three to zero. The other team's at bat. They hit a ball. Pops up. What happens in baseball? If you don't watch it all, is it excited fans? They try to catch balls like a souvenir ball. And so there's this guy Steve Bartman, who's later going to receive death threats for this. Tries to catch the He doesn't see that the Cubs player, uh, Moises Alou, I think is who it was. that right? Huh? Coming in. It looks like he can catch it. He tries to catch it. Interferes. They don't get the out. The Marlins go on to score eight runs that inning. Win the game. Win the series. And it will be more than a decade before the Cubs go to the World Series. Thank you for that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Need a word of encouragement. That's what I said on Facebook. Unless you're Pastor Dave, <clears throat> some of you are Wolfpack fans, and you got pack fans here. Remember the Cardiac Pack, 1983. Most of you are like, I wasn't alive then. <laughs> I read about it. Uh, if you've watched the NCAA tournament, you know they always play that, you know, one shining moment, last-second three-point shots get hit. NC State was playing the Houston Cougars in 1983. Super. Underdogs. Like they should have gotten hammered. They had Hakeem Olajuwon, future Hall of Famer, Clyde Drexler. They were called Five Slam A Jamma because they played above the rim. They dunk everything home. NC State kept it close the whole game. The end of the game, they had a chance to win. One of the NC State players from beyond the three point line heaves a shot, and you're like, this is the one shining moment, but it was an air ball. But, and in a game changing moment, there's always a but there was a guy standing by the hoop who was for NC State, not Hakeem Olajuwon, and he dunked it in for the championship. And there's a famous scene of Coach V running out on the court. Any Wolfpack fans? All right. Cheer for Jesus later. Just kidding. But there's something bigger than just a game-changing moment. There are some players that are so big, they actually change the game. You've probably seen Shaquille O'Neal on Gold Bond commercials or Read stories of his generosity, and he's just like this giant, lovable man. Pretty funny when he does his NBA analysis because he's not afraid to talk trash to the players that are currently playing. But when he played, he was a force. If you got him the ball down in the lane, he was going to dunk it. He might rip the basket right to the ground. You can look that up on YouTube. And they changed. They didn't call the fouls the same on Shaq because they called on other players, and. He said that his dad told him, you're a bad man because you actually changed the game. But one of the ways he changed the game was actually at something he was really bad at. He couldn't make free throws. And so they invented a whole strategy when you played the Lakers called hack-a-shack. Where at the end of the game, if you were losing and you were running out of time and you're trying to make a comeback, if you foul the opposite team, the clock stops. But they get to shoot free throws. But Shaq couldn't make his free throws. And so he's a huge hand. It's like, they were trying to shoot on like one of those nerf hoops. It's like that. He's like shooting out there. It's terrible. And so the other coach is like, well, we know he's going to miss and it stops the clock. So we get the ball back and they don't get any points. But they said it was unsportsmanlike conduct. And the real truth is, I think, it was boring to watch. <laughs> and so the NBA actually made a rule where if you followed a player in the last two minutes or in overtime, the other team got a free throw and the ball. So... Shaq doesn't have to be the one to take it. (laughs) And they still get the ball. You wouldn't want to do that. He changed the game. But there are some people that even transcend, and it's not just in the area of sports. You can pick this in any industry. They transcend just a moment in time, and they transcend the game itself. Like Jackie Robinson, the first black player for Major League Baseball that during a time of intense racial tension started to bridge the gap between white and black players. And he has a famous quote. I don't care if you like me, I just ask that you respect me as a human. Hmm. Wouldn't it be something if we just treated every other human, no matter what they thought or what their background was, like another image bearer of God, as the Bible says they are. Hmm. And then you've got things that have disrupted the world and changed the world. So you've got things that have happened in a moment. You've got things that have changed subcultures. You've got things that have changed industries. But what about the iPhone? Hmm. Steve Jobs in 2007 steps out on a stage with his... Apple logo behind them and introduces something that's not actually new because we already had smartphones and we already had, you know, remember the iPods and some of them were like a brick and then they started progressively getting smaller but you could store a certain amount of songs on it, that's so long ago, but you had a separate digital camera that you bought and they put all these things together and no keyboard, no stylus, you just touch the screen, it's intuitive, oh, and it created a bunch of new industries, oh, and it uses third-party apps, oh, and... The whole world is different because of it. Hmm. Or 9-11. That changed the world. Obviously, the lives of everybody that was impacted on that day, but then the awareness of terrorism. And it wasn't just that you have to take your shoes off when you go through the TSA. It was an awareness that we were constantly at war, even if it looks different than any war we've ever been in before. Huh. And it changed industries. And TSA exists. There are lots of things that changed that day. Or there was a little sickness that happened around 2019, 2020. (laughs) COVID, you guys see that? Anybody take part in that? Some of you protested, I know. Supply chains changed, jobs were lost, relationships changed, industries were born, an awareness of healthcare changed the world. So you've got things that happen in a finite moment. You've got things that change an industry, Michael Jackson doing the moonwalk, an iPhone. A printing press? pick which day in history, but there are these things that even change the world. What if, I want to ask you today, what if there's something bigger than any of that? More than a moment, more than a game or an industry or the world, but is so life-altering, it changes eternity, literally shakes the world and metaphorically shakes the world. It's God's life-altering grace. And that's what we're talking about today. Luke chapter 23, we're looking at in this series called Uncommon Savior, these six hours that Jesus spent on the cross, hanging two feet above the ground, speaking seven words, seven different statements that he makes, and through those seven statements, reveals who he is and what his kingdom is like, and your invitation to become part of a different kingdom. We talked about on Easter Sunday, that first week that we were in this series a couple weeks ago. How the crucifixion, oftentimes we romanticize it. People will get tattoos of the cross or put it on their car or t-shirt or earrings or necklaces. But in the first century, you couldn't even talk about a crucifixion. It was not polite conversation. It was so gruesome, people had seen it. The cross wasn't reserved just for Jesus. Thousands of people had been crucified. The Persians invented it. The Romans perfected it. And it was a torture mechanism of execution for the most vile criminals I told a story in a couple of the services. Easter's a blur to me of which service I told what. But there was one story in history where the Romans actually crucified 6,000 people along 120 miles of road. Think about that. You ever drive down I-95 and see those signs, the Pedros? Imagine crucified bodies all the way. And Rome's showing Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. (laughs) because we brutally beat anyone who opposes us, and we show, through crucifixion, their submission. Only Jesus, his cross is the exact opposite of everything else. It's the reverse. He's found innocent, but he's crucified. He's the only one who has no sin. They put above him, your crime, you're the king of the Jews, in three different languages. The words that he speaks, one commentator says that he is ruling and reigning from the cross. They're not statements begging for help. They're statements of power, of a different kingdom. But two people can see it and see something totally different. And that's what we're going to look at today as we look at these oftentimes referred to as thieves on the cross. Luke chapter 23, we're really focusing in on verses 43 through 46, but I'm going to start reading in verse 32 to give you context. Jesus has already been betrayed, betrayed by Judas with a kiss, arrested found innocent multiple times. Pilate has tried to release him. There was another man who was supposed to be crucified on his cross. He was a criminal named Barabbas. And it says here, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So Jesus in the middle. There's a a criminal on one side and a criminal on the the other side. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Interesting statement, considering the Persians had invented this hundreds of years ago. The Romans knew exactly what they were doing. What is Jesus saying? They cast lots to divide his garments. Oh, let me just pause right there. If you're a skeptic, uh, think about this. That was actually prophesied in Psalm 22, verse 18, that they would cast lots for his garments. I remember I had one friend who had attended our church for a while. He's not here currently. He's an atheist. and I was talking to him about fulfilled prophecy one time, and he said to me, well, Jesus only fulfilled the prophecies because he knew what they were. How much power do you have to have to get your enemies to do what you, this is it like Obi-Wan Kenobi? You will gamble for my clothes. Can you imagine if someone came to rob your house and you're like, no, mow the lawn. <laughs> the real thing is like, what about the virgin birth? So he was controlling things before he was born. There's only one person who can do that. So your argument against is actually, just think about it, just think about it. So they're gambling over his clothes. And people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine, as Pastor Dave preached on last week, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now, Pilate's a coward. This is the one time he has courage. Because people wanted him to take that down, and he goes, nope, what I did, I did. Sticks with his decision. And that sign stays hanging over Jesus. One of the criminals, verse 39, who were hanged, rallied at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That's convenient. Throw me in there too. Remember in a game-changing moment, there's always a but. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Even a criminal is saying he's innocent. Pilate's already declared him innocent multiple times, tried to release him 10 times. Herod called him. Everyone who's put Jesus on trial said he's innocent. Now the guy next to him was dying the same death says, this guy's innocent. We're not. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you. Now Everything Jesus said was true. If somebody ever says to you, let me be honest with you, go, hmm, that's kind of what I was thinking. When Jesus says, truly I say to you, he's emphasizing, this is really important. What I'm about to say, like if you're listening to a coach, he's giving you the strategy, It's like, all right, we're going to play this, do that, but here, listen up. Jesus goes, hey, this is really important. Listen, you said, when I enter my kingdom, someday, Jesus does beyond what we could ever ask for. Him. He says, today, you will be promised with me in paradise. Wow. Last words are lasting words. Jesus is dying here. Last words are lasting words. Some of you may have seen this week that uh famous pastor Charles Stanley passed away. Charles Stanley was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta for I think about 50 years. That's a long time. Had a TV show, radio show. Some of you maybe came to Christ through his ministry or were blessed through it in some way. Throughout the years, you got another uh, famous pastor in his family as a son who's pastor of a big church in Atlanta as well, North Point Church, Andy Stanley. Andy, his son uh, shared on Twitter some of his dad's last words. I want to share them with you. He said, uh, talked about the last three weeks of their lives together. So these final few weeks with my dad have been precious beyond words. At the end of every visit, he asked me to pray for him, two pastors, <laughs> which, of course I did. on my knees beside the big leather chair he was confined to these past several months. Stanley tweeted. But as I was leaving his house this past Saturday night, he asked if he could pray for me, and then he said, as if he knew, then as was his habit, he said, I couldn't be prouder of you, Andy. And those are powerful words from a parent. Andy said, "Wonderfully weighty words." Then he said, "I'll miss him every day until I see him again." If you ever heard last words of somebody who's important to you, a parent, spouse, those are weighty words, because of who says them. The words of Jesus are weighty on the cross, not just because he's our savior, of who says them. Not just because of these last moments, not just because they reveal who he is, and reveal entrance into his kingdom. These words literally and metaphorically shook the world, and they change eternity, have they changed doors. Today, we're looking at this life-altering grace. This passage is messy, not just because it's bloody, not just because the guy that's next to Jesus' life was messy, but because what Jesus is doing is entering into each one of our lives and inviting us into a different way of life. And so for my first point today, I really want to ask you a question. Has your life been wrecked by the gospel? But what I'm going to do is make it a statement and say, if you've experienced this life-altering grace, then your life has been wrecked. Think about that word by the gospel. What is the gospel? And so that gets said a lot. It was really popular for selling Christian books uh, about five or six years ago. If you wrote a blog and you put the word gospel in the title, or if you wanted to make an argument, you didn't want people to be able to argue against you. You said, "This is the gospel." And so, what is the? What do you even think of when you hear gospel? A lot of baggage on it. Some of you might think of a group of four guys that sing. One of them sings really low. If you grew up in church, you're like, oh, no, it's Sunday night service. Anyway, a couple of you know. You're picking up what I'm putting down. Maybe you think of a sales pitch for getting someone to convert and start coming to your church. Maybe you think of a booklet that has uh, four steps or laws that people need to know. Maybe you think of something else. I don't know. Everybody's got their own experiences. And so when I say gospel, the word just means good news. It was used in this time of things other than just Christianity. It was the declaration of usually a significant news event that demanded a response the rise of a new king, a victory in war. And so, Christians, when they were using the word euangelion, gospel, it just means good news, what they were talking about was the news of Jesus, that God had come, lived the life that we could not live, a life without sin. And that's why at the end of this book, you keep seeing all these people say, He's innocent, He's innocent. Everything you've charged him with, we found him innocent. That couldn't be said of any of us. We're not innocent. All have sinned. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died the death. We deserve to die. Here he is on a cross at Calvary that belonged to a man named Barabbas. But the reality is, any of us could be on that cross. He's dying in our place, taking the punishment for sin, the wrath of God at the cross, But he doesn't stay dead. He is risen. Yeah. Just because it's not Easter on the calendar, we are wasting our time if he's dead. He is risen. And that means you can have life because he defeated death. That means your sins can be forgiven. That's good news. A lot of people know that information, but it hasn't wrecked them. Has it wrecked you? Because it does with this man. I want to ask you to look at this story from the perspective of these thieves. You can pick whichever one you want. But try and imagine being there and looking at it through their eyes. Because you, know you know how if you look at a story through different characters' eyes, you can see it from a different perspective? And sometimes you even see a different thing. Does it ever amaze you that two people can see the same thing and see it totally different? Watch like a State of the Union address, and then go to CNN, and then flip over to Fox. Wait, didn't you guys hear the same thing? What happened here? Your worldview, which is the way you look at everything in the world, changes how you see and experience things. And so today, I'll preach from the same verses, Luke chapter 23, 43 through 46, to all of you, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, will have a private conversation with each one of you. So one voice, a thousand conversations. Is that not amazing? Amazing. And a lot of the conversation will be tainted by the way that you view the world, which is based on what's going on in your life. And so I heard a baby uh, making a noise. If somebody just had a new baby over here, but somebody over here has just buried a parent, they're going to have a different experience. If one person's a skeptic and one person's a new believer, one person's been following Christ for 70 years, and one person's been following Jesus for seven days, like they're all going to, it's going to be a little different. I've preached messages before and gotten off the stage and been like, that was terrible. So yeah, I even critique myself somebody be like, that's the best message you ever preached. I'm like, I don't know what God's doing in your life, but amen. Because <laughs> different things, different moments, and so it's kind of popular now to take old stories like Karate Kid and retell it from who was the villain's perspective. Imagine the cross here from the perspective of these criminals. Who are they? Well, the word that's used in, in Mark and And in Matthew's account of this, robbers, thieves, some of your passages say, I want you to know this, they're not petty thieves because they're being crucified. There's a lot we don't know. We don't know their names. They're given names about the 4th century in some documents in the Gospel of Nicodemus, and, and some of you may have heard that. And there are a lot of fictional things that have been told about them that maybe could be thought of based on what we do know. But what do we know? And so when you're studying your Bible, it's fine to use your imagination but what do we know for sure? What we know for sure is they're bad because crucifixion is reserved for the vilest of criminals. Foreigners, slaves, the vilest of criminals. That's the only people that get crucified except for Jesus who's innocent. The word that's used to describe the man that was going to die on the middle cross is the same word that's translated these robbers or criminals in Matthew and Mark, lestes, Greek word, it means a terrorist. So that's who this is, those of you who remember 9-11. Um, Barabbas is described here. We don't know for sure that these men were his partners. I believe they were. Because the three of them were being crucified together. I think it's sending a message, which is what Rome usually does with these. And he's called an insurrectionist and a murderer. And so I want to ask you a question right now before we go much further. Get in your mind, what's a picture in your mind of an ideal Christian? Or like if I just said, hey, are you a Christian? Is that person a Christian? What do you think of? Like I said, probably a thousand different pictures. Some of you, Ned Flanders, Heidi Ho, good neighbor. Can you imagine? Because you grew up watching The Simpsons. And some of you, you had a parent or a grandparent or somebody that got up and prayed at two in the morning. And so you're like, there it is. I talked to a guy the other day, said, are you a Christian? He's like, well, I'm not like some of those Christians that go to your church. I don't get up at five in the morning and read the Bible. I didn't see that in there as a requirement, but okay. Some of you think of, you know, it's like Jesus freak on the front line, like those people that are like the army rangers of Christianity, they do more before 9 a.m. than the rest of us do all day for Jesus. And like, what do you think of? Most of us don't think of criminals. But I think we've probably all seen like a prison conversion. Have you seen some of those stories? Sometimes they're inspiring and encouraging. Sometimes they're controversial. I read one this week of a guy named Chris Watts, Remember him? He was, it was a popular case that took place back like about 2018. Um, Chris, there he is with his family, his wife and two kids, uh, murdered his wife when she was pregnant and his two daughters. Originally, he said that uh, the wife, when he confessed an affair to her, started to hurt the girls, and so he killed her. But later, I think it was about a year later, he said, that's not true. I killed my wife, and then one of my daughters saw it, and so I killed her and he hid the bodies. And then I read this week that the reason why he confessed the real story was because he had come to Christ. And he wrote a letter to his mom saying, now I know peace and love and forgiveness. And you don't need to verbally respond to this one because this is more for your own heart. How do you feel about that? Some people are offended that that would be true. That's how it would feel for these men to be people that would be a picture of Christianity. This guy's a known, notorious, some Bible translations say, criminal, like Barabbas. Same word used to describe them. When you read Luke's account, which I just read to you through here, it appears that one of them, we oftentimes call the good thief, which that's an oxymoron. (laughs) The good thief's coming to visit your house. Is he still a good thief? Anyway. um, It's like there's one good guy and one bad guy, but when you read all the accounts together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, you see they were both mocking Jesus, but something altered one of their lives. Why one and not the other? What was it? There's a but moment. The crowds are mocking, to put this into context, remember Jesus has been beaten, mocked, flogged, six out of ten people died from flogging, it's not a picture of a heroic leader here that he's turning to. This is pretty amazing faith. What happened? They're both hanging two feet above the ground. Jesus, six hours, seven words. And the crowds, Matthew chapter 27 tells us what they're saying. Those who passed by, so apparently Jesus is crucified on a busy road. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, you would destroy the temple. They're referring to a teaching that Jesus gave in the temple. Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his body. He's on the cross. Do you know what happens in three days? This is an ironic mocking by the crowd. You who would restore the temple or destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So the crowds are mocking. Go to the next part. You've got these religious slash political leaders. Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a religious and political leader. They have the same God, power. They use Jesus to get there if they need to, like these guys. So also the chief priests, the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself, he's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. No, you won't. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They're mocking him now as the religious leaders. See, there's a danger when you use the Bible for your agenda rather than submit to the Bible and let it lead you. The Bible is really clear God's not going to rescue Jesus. Isaiah 53, 700 years before this happens. He's going to be not just to divide his garments up, that's Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, it's God's desire, will to crush him. He will be bruised for our iniquities, our transgressions. All like sheep gone astray. We got a good shepherd here on the cross who's done nothing wrong, who's going to be crucified with criminals. It's all stated in the... They're the leaders. They should know he's not going to be rescued. They just use the Bible. The Bible's not changing them. They're using the Bible. But then the soldiers are both doing it too. Look at verse 44, Matthew 27. And the robbers, lestes... Plural. Who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so they're saying, he saved others, save yourself. That's an ironic statement too. Some of you here have heard testimonies. We have them. I see a friend in the room. He's an alcoholic. In a moment, God took that away. He hasn't been tempted again. That's an awesome testimony. It's rare. A lot of people, when you have a sin that you struggle with, it's a lifelong battle. Whether it's an addiction, pornography, substance, whatever it is, gossip, self righteousness, whatever it is. Pray, God, take it away. You still battle. It's interesting to me here what's happening as they're saying, save yourself. In other words, the temptation, be the king without the cross. It's been a lifelong temptation for Jesus. You go to Matthew chapter 4, Satan and Jesus are in the wilderness. I'll give you all these kingdoms. Just bow down and worship me. King, no cross. You're hungry? Don't you, you have power. What are they saying to him? He doesn't have the power to save himself. The irony is if he saves himself, he can't save you. He can't save others if he saves himself. He's giving his life as a ransom for you and for me. Really interesting wording that when the guy finally takes responsibility for his sin, he says we're being rewarded for our deed. Not punished. What does the Bible say? The wages, what you earn, of sin is death. We're, being rewar- we're getting the payment for what we've earned, is what he says. Jesus is getting payment for what we've earned. He became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. Second Corinthians 5.21. That's the gospel. Have you been wrecked by the gospel? Because when you are wrecked, that's what's going to happen to this guy. You're never the same. It's life-altering. There's an accident, for those of you who keep up with the news at the beginning of this year, of a famous actor. His name is Jeremy Renner. You might know him as Hawkeye, if you're familiar with the comic series Hawkeye, maybe you know him if like me, like the Bourne series, he was the guy that was in the one movie that Matt Damon wasn't in. Poor guy. I don't think he did a bad job. You just had to, you got to have the guy. And so uh, what happened at the beginning of the year, he has a home in Nevada. It snowed. There was a big snowstorm. And his nephew was at the bottom of the road. They were clearing the road. And Renner was driving a snowplow. Snowplow weighed about 1,400 pounds. Renner got out of the snowplow to try and help rescue uh, his nephew who was in this car stuck. And the snowplow kept going. And Renner tried to get into the snowplow to stop it. He fell. This is not a movie, so superheroes don't always succeed. He fell underneath the snowplow. It crushed his chest and 30 bones in his body. They weren't sure if he was going to make it. He is alive today. He did survive. They carefully flighted him out of there. He was in critical condition. This is months ago. And he recently, on Instagram, released a statement. And he said, the 30 bone, 30 plus bones in my body that are broken, these muscles, they will recover and grow stronger. And then he talked about what really was changed in their family was relationships and how this was uniting for them because of love that was put into action. When you have a life-altering accident, you'll never be the same. Is that for good or for bad? Depends. Will he fully recover physically? I don't know. Will it be for good in their relationships? I don't know. I know they'll never be the same. Some of you have had life-altering experiences, accidents. Have you had a life-altering experience with the grace of God? I'm not asking if you know the information. But are you even like slightly offended that this guy might be ahead of you in the kingdom? Have you thought about that? Like some of you, you, do, you serve Jesus. I mean, you've been serving Jesus for a number of years and mission trips and there's stuff that you want to do that you don't do because you love Jesus and you're hoping one day. I was reading this morning, Matthew 19, Peter asked Jesus, what do we get? We left everything to follow you. And Jesus goes, you're going to get a hundredfold. Like you're going to be rewarded generously. And he says, but the least in the kingdom are the greatest. Huh? Jesus has a way of not just playing exactly the way that we think he should play. And he tells a story. And the story goes, real short version, is that a guy goes into the market and he's got a, an industry where he needs some day laborers and he hires some day laborers to work for the whole day and they agree to a wage and it's a generous wage and he brings them in and then he goes a few hours later and hires another group. And then he goes to another group and he says to them, he's like, I'll be, I'll be fair, and they just trust him. Don't say the dollar amount. He goes to the last group, there's four groups. He goes to the last group an hour before the day's over, hires that group. At the end of the day, he pays them all the same amount. The first group is ticked. Jesus ends the parable saying, the least will be the greatest. The last will be first. Was he unfair to the first group? And God doesn't pay based on what you earn. You see, a lot of us, especially self-righteous Christians, we believe grace. You're giving something you don't deserve. No, grace is more than that. Grace is you're given the opposite of what you deserve. Hmm. Have you been wrecked by the gospel of grace? Would you be offended if you get to heaven and this guy's ahead of you? Is there anybody that if you get to heaven and they're there, you're going to be upset? Those are questions to ask your own heart about self-righteousness because when you're wrecked by the gospel, there's no room for self-righteousness. And life becomes ruled by grace. That's our second point. A life ruled by grace. What am I talking about when I talk about grace? Let me give you a couple quotes. Uh, One book that I I think is a great book just on general to get you thinking about the Lord is uh, J.F. Packer's Knowing God. It's a classic. It's been around for a long time. He says this, The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners. Contrary, key word, To their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. So God's actually rebelling against your sin by being gracious to you. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and who had no reason to expect anything but severity. The interesting thing is when you read the gospels and you see how Jesus interacts with people, the people who come knowing they're unworthy and that they need help, he's so empathetic and compassionate. The people who think they're entitled to something, it's different. Which would you be? I see, grace is when you're given the opposite. It's not just looking the other way at somebody else or like Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, I'm thankful. Some people think that this is a godly response today. Like you see somebody and in your estimation, you think they're worse than you. Oh, I'm just grateful. The Bible says to be grateful. Grateful I'm not like them. I've got a gratitude journal. They're in it. You know, you November. Your husband's growing his mustache. You're doing your gratitude journal, getting ready for Thanksgiving. And your wife's writing in her gratitude journal. And you're going, I'm not going to be anxious about anything. Got the verses and prayer and thankfulness. And then you see somebody who, in your mind, their sin is worse than yours, Chris Watts. But is it? Have you read the Bible? I just, when I read the Bible, I don't have it all figured out, but it seems like God's gauging is different than mine. Because I see people sometimes, and I think, how, why are you even here? You're driving in the left lane. Get out of my way. Why do you exist? How can you think something like that? Like I just, so I can be judgmental too. I'm not just preaching against it. So we think like murder, that's the worst, that's the bad. Moses murders a guy, and then God says, I want you to come and lead my people. Then he hits a rock with a stick and God says, no, you can't go in. I'd have probably been like, don't worry about that. But listen, stop killing people, all right? And so, God's grace is pretty amazing. Are you amazed by it? Like am not talking about a song. You're like speechless when you realize what's happening in your life. That's what happens with this guy. He can't believe. He knows what he's learned. How does he get there? Because some of you, if we leave today, people will mistake you for a committed Christian, but you know in your heart, maybe you're not a vile criminal, notoriously bad, but you know you don't love Jesus. But you do the stuff. You fit great into the Raleigh culture of clean sin. See, one of the big problems, I think I've lived here long enough that I can rail against some of this stuff, and you know I'm still one of you. (laughs) We're really educated. And a lot of us think as long as we know the right information when we stand before God, we're going to be good. So we've got PhDs and MBAs and CFPs. And some of y'all have so many initials on your emails. I think you're speaking in tongues when you write me an email. I don't know what's happening. It's like decoding one of my kids' text messages. What? All right, copy, paste. What does that mean? Okay. Love you too. What the world? Turtles and stuff. Whatever. We know a lot of stuff. And sometimes the gospel's even been presented sometimes, like, here's how you share it. What will God say when he's about to let you into heaven? Like, are you going to give the right answer? There's a pop quiz. Let me tell you something about salvation. Salvation is not about passing an examination. It is about heart transformation. So if you think that on the day of judgment you're going to stand before God, he's going to go, pop quiz, get your Scantron out. Because it's old school, right? There's a scroll. You're going to fill it in. So getting get any points for my name. Your name in the book of life is the real question. How do you know? Because you read the Bible and you're like, there's people that come and they're like, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out? They're doing miracles. They've, got a, they've sent a cover letter ahead of time. They got a resume. I was church attendance. I listened to that one guy. Oh, my goodness, a black t-shirt guy. Hey yeah, there. Can I get some points? No. Nope. But I didn't, remember that one time I could have, and I didn't. Eh. I taught in your name, went on a mission trip. Apart from me, I never knew you. That's Matthew 7, 21 through 23, if you think I'm making that up. If you think that your entrance into heaven is based on information, I encourage you to study the New Testament and ask yourself one question: Who has the best theology in the New Testament? You'll be shocked. Demons, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus comes to a situation and a demon says to him, the disciples don't even get who he is yet, okay? Lord, are you, are you here to torment us before it's time? A lot of questions about that verse. Thought no one knew the day or the hour. What are you talking about before? Time of year. At least we know that they acknowledge that he's more powerful than them, that he's the Lord, that he's got stuff the Pharisees, the religious leaders don't have figured out. The disciples don't know. They're right when they talk about Jesus. They're wrong in relationship to him, but they believe in him. But I thought it was just belief. Well, read James chapter 2 and verse 19. Even the demons believe and shudder. We got people in probably this room right now, but certainly that attend church on a regular basis that are further from God than demons and will put them in places of leadership because we don't know. People that know all the right stuff, think they're good because they believe facts, but they don't shudder at God, they trifle with sin. But they assume, because when I get to heaven, God's going to ask me why I should get in, and what's the right answer? Jesus, that's always the right answer at church, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Next week, if I ask you a question, you don't know. What's the answer? Right? Jesus. Just say Jesus. You fell asleep. Jesus. <laughs> you lose your play. Pastor Bryce is leading us in a song. You don't know. Jesus. So you just say it. Always the right answer at church. You think you're going to stand before the pearly gates and, Jesus, there's no other name. That's right. That's a good answer. It is the right answer, but if he doesn't know you, how do we know? Salvation is not an examination. It's your heart transformation. And if you know in your heart that transformation hasn't taken place, how does that happen? Well, I think we get a picture here because this gospel is presented as the gospel through the thief's interaction with Jesus. Why did he turn? I don't know. If Maybe perhaps it was when he heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. He understood the gospel of forgiveness. Maybe he heard Jesus say, love your enemies, and he sees it happening because there's a difference between hearing information and seeing somebody live it out. It's real. Maybe it was when he heard his own lips mocking and saying, he saved others. Pause. Wait, he did? Maybe he can save me. Something changed. Maybe he had never heard Jesus teach, but he had heard of Jesus. And now here he looks at this sign above his head that's written in three languages. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He goes, I've been living my whole life for a temporary kingdom. I thought if I just got my political way, he's an insurrectionist then I'd be happy, and I realize that's all temporary. See, this man is hashtag blessed because he's got the blessing of knowing he's going to die today. How long will it take? I don't know. How much pain will it be? I don't know. It's going to be bad, but it's going to be over. There is a blessing in knowing today you're going to die because a lot of us float around like, maybe someday. No, it's going to happen, and he knows it's today. And I don't know what happens, or how it happens, but, there's always a but moment, but God, by grace, we're saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Not of works, lest anyone boast. But what we oftentimes neglect in saying those verses is that what we deserved is the beginning part of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God. You're saved by grace. You're given the opposite of what you deserve. That's what happens for him. What's the path? If it doesn't happen for you, what's the path? It starts with the fear of God. That's what he says to that other thief. The criminal, the terrorist. When that guy's saying you saved others, you save yourself, you gotta have a real fear of God. Look at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged rallied at him, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But game changer. The other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. I know one person who does not attend our church, has been invited to attend our church. They said, because I think it would be disrespectful to God to pretend to be something I'm not. Huh. I've never been so encouraged by someone deciding they don't want to come to our church. I wish he would come to our church because I'd like him to be around some of you that are authentically are in a relationship with Jesus and hear more of the truth. But I respect that more than somebody who comes, plays with God a little bit, and then goes on another. No change? You have fear of God? Not only is he a fear of God, he takes responsibility for sin. Look at the next part. The other rebuked him. Do you not fear God? You, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward. The wages, what you earn, sin is death. What you've earned, he said, we deserve to be on these crosses. He doesn't. But this man has done nothing wrong. You can take responsibility for your own sin. We live in a time where that is rare. We are taught, the more difficult your life has been, the less accountable you are for your actions. You are only responding to the things that are happening around you. Maybe it's your parents' fault. Maybe it's some systemic issue. Maybe it's some injustice in the world. And there are real victims. There are people that have a significant pain. I'm not making light of that. But when we stand before God one day, you say, I don't believe in God because there's hypocrites in the church. And God's going, I'm going to talk to them too. But right now I'm talking to you. And you are going to be accountable. If you haven't taken responsibility for your sin, you are not a Christian. You cannot be because you can't receive grace until you realize you have a problem you can't solve. And that Jesus is solving that problem at the cross. It begins with the fear of God. That's the first step toward Him. He's different than you. And you have sin, and He has the solution. And you receive that grace. That's the third part. It's receiving the grace. I was reading this morning, John chapter 8, some of my favorite passages. There's a woman that's caught in adultery. Now think about when you receive grace, it changes the way you relate to God. It's no more striving, not earning his love. He loves you because of who he is, not because of who you are or what you've done. He is love. He loves everybody. Not everybody receives the love, though. It's the people who've received the grace. And the people who receive the grace, you know it because it's how they relate with other people you gracious with others that's how you'll know so there's this woman she's caught in adultery jesus is teaching got a group of people he's teaching them the bible some religious leaders come in with a woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery she's probably barely dressed it's shocking everyone's paying attention to that not to what jesus is saying same as what happened in this room right now if some half-naked woman was drug up here said what do we do with this lady "Uh, turn the cameras off like what'd you do they say the law of Moses, that's the Bible, says that she should be stoned to death. They're setting a trap for Jesus. It's like if they put a big bear trap up there and said, we want you to step into this, Jesus. Because if you say that we should let her go, that means you don't believe the Bible. But if you say that we should stone her, Rome has a law, you're not allowed to stone her. The government's coming after you, Jesus. Jesus knows what they're doing. Let me tell you something about Jesus. A trap, you imagine there? He's got teeth to him. He's gritty. He's not disobeying the Bible, but he's showing you life is layered. And he goes after the heart of these men rather than dealing with the sin of this woman first. And it's like they set the trap up, and he goes, yeah, I'm going to walk over here. (laughs) And he kneels down, and he starts to write in the sand. Scholars like to argue about what was he writing in the sand. Ten commandments, their sins, all that stuff. It doesn't matter. Point is, he's not answering their question. Instead, he says, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. It's really interesting what John tells us happens is no one stoned her? None of them thought they were without sin? It says the oldest went away first. I think that tells us something too. I think, I think, it probably means either the oldest had more sin because they had more time to do it, or at least they were mature enough to know they had more sin. And they dropped their stones and they left. And then Jesus says to the woman, does no one condemn you? She said, no. He says, then neither do I condemn you. But grace is not just, there's no big deal. He's going to pay for that sin on the cross. He knows that. He says, don't keep doing that. It's an invitation to repentance. When this man says, remember me in your kingdom, That's a call for grace. It's not, hey, remember my name. Remember remember me. And then Jesus promises. He's not just promising no pain on the cross anymore. You'll be with me in paradise. Do you want that? If you have that, do you receive that? Has it wrecked you? If it does, then what would it look like for our church to be a place of grace? Where we give people space? That they're not who God wants them to be yet. Yet being the key word. They're not who they once were. Some of them, the fact that they're here is a step toward God. Maybe you're a skeptic. What would it look like for you to fear God or take responsibility for your sin or get wrecked by God's grace? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and there are a thousand different things happening in hearts, online, in this room. and... And I know there's lots of thoughts right now, and the worship team's gonna come here. They're gonna play some music in just a moment, but I don't want you to miss this moment with the Lord. And so whatever conversation he's been having with you and is having with you right now, you continue to have that, maybe guided by my words or maybe in spite of my words. If you've never received the grace of God, why not right now? Maybe like Chris Watts, you didn't know you could have a relationship with God. You didn't know what it would be like to experience his peace, his love, his forgiveness, but you want that. Here's what you do. Acknowledge that he's different than you. You have sin that's separating you from him. But believe that when he died on the cross for your sins, he was dying so that could be removed. So you could be, even though your behavior might not be, that you could become his righteousness. That's a substitution right there. And you want to receive his forgiveness and receive his righteousness, then you ask him to be your Savior right now. In your own words, well, you could pray like this God, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that your son Jesus died for me. And right now, I want to ask him to be my Savior. I want to place my faith in him. I want to give my life to him. I want to ask Jesus to be your Savior. And the Bible promises that he will rescue you, he'll come into your life, he will forgive you, wash you of all, all uncleanness, all sin like he transformed that man. He did some miracles in the Bible. He opened eyes, healed legs, healed leprosy. There's no miracle quite like this on the cross. That man went from being sin to being righteousness right there in that moment. That could be happening to you right now. Some of you have received that grace, but you've been lacking grace in relationships with others. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to be gracious to? Who do you need to give some space it's kind of funny how sometimes we can learn something and then be upset with someone 10 minutes later because they don't know it. We forget that we didn't know it 10 minutes ago. There's a time when you needed the same forgiveness that someone else needs. Holy Spirit, we remind people of those moments and the scenarios that you know that I don't know right now? And will you help us be a people of grace that give space for grace? The Southridge will be a place of grace that our homes cars, wherever we go, if we've been transformed by you, that your grace would go. Not forsaking your truth. Everything you said is still true. How do those two things interact? God, will you you show us it's messy? Will you mess us up for the gospel? We want life-altering but moments with you, and I pray that would be one of those moments right now for all of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at at infosfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.